So you can still be, you know, thinking about movies you want to revisit and spend time with and rewatch, and uh, so will I, but we just won't be so, like, uh, official about it. Awesome. All right. Dan, what did you watch this week? All right. So now we've both seen Parasite, so we can talk about that. I think we both saw Dolomite. Yes. We can talk about that. Um, I watched The Laundromat. Did you see that? I did not, no. All right. Well, I won't take a lot of time on this, but this is directed by Steven Soderbergh, obviously starring Meryl Streep, but not really. I thought this movie was a mess. It's trying to be Adam McKay-esque, where we have some big complex issue that is explained, except Adam McKay is able to explain it in a fun, entertaining way. To me, Soderbergh did not really explain what was going on. We've got um, Antonio Banderas and Gary Oldman, who are acting as a Greek chorus, trying to explain this case of the Panama Papers and how offshore accounts really swindle the American public. Uh, Meryl Streep is in, to me, a laughable performance as a Latinx woman um, for no reason. There's no reason why she's playing somebody else. Her costume looks ridiculous. She is ridiculous. I, I just, I was just really perplexed by this movie. It's, it's maybe worth a watch if you're interested in the names that are involved Mm -hmm. to see if you can make more sense of it than I can. Um, I certainly cannot. Soderbergh is usually enough for me to at least, uh, give a watch. Yeah. Well, if you do, let me know what you think. Okay. Yeah. Cause I would like to hear about that from you. Sure. Did you see anything else besides what we've both seen? Uh, let's see. I caught up on Judy, which I feel like we've referenced. Oh, I want to hear so about many times, but I did. Judy. I did spend the evening with Judy. Uh, you know, it really did remind me of uh, film stars don't die in Liverpool, which was about Gloria Graham's last days. Uh, another aging female celebrity who was embraced in in Britain uh, late in in her life and and had a uh, special relationship with a young British man. Um. Similar kind of a tone, interested in invoking the person as realistically as possible, but also kind of doing a fantasia on their their late life. Uh, There's more than I expected uh, with the flashbacks and the, you know, the the the, the look back at Judy's origins. Um, and that stuff was a little bit I felt like the flashbacks were the first few I was rolling my eyes a little bit at how on the nose they were. Um, and then I, you know, I kind of just accepted, of course, if you're going to just go right for the, for the wizard of Oz buttons, if you're doing a Judy movie, why not? Um, I thought the performance was the reason to see it. I thought she was good. I thought she kind of was cycling through the same few ticks over and over again, but she did evoke what I've seen of, of gosh, I wanted to call her aging Judy Garland. But right. the movie says she dies at the age of 47. I know. She's like, insane. Uh, like our age, Judy Garland. Yeah. And she has like old lady mannerisms like that. To me, that was an old lady when I was a kid. <laughs> right. But um, it's a good performance. Uh, it's an interesting enough movie. The The musical performances should have probably been a stronger framework than they end up being. But it's a it's a competent movie. I didn't recognize Rufus Sewell from uh, from Dark City, a, a movie we talked about, until I saw the end credits, and I couldn't believe it as her husband, um, her ex husband, right? Uh, what was his name? Uh, Sid. So uh, yeah, a solid. I'd give it three stars and say that it's good, and the performance is you know buzzworthy, and 
I haven't thought about it a lot since I saw it, though. Yeah, it's not very thought-provoking. Um, did you see Fosse Verdon? No, I didn't. See, like Michelle Williams as Gwen Verdon reminds me of what Zellweger is trying to do here, except Michelle Williams is so much better, mm-hmm. which is unfortunate at, at, at the same time. But yeah, yeah it, it's it's a totally fine movie. I like that they tried to do the flashbacks to give some insight, but the flashbacks are so stilted. Yeah. Like, do we really think that, um, you know, Louis whatever mayor was talking like that? Right. He's speaking yeah, like yeah. he's like in Hollywood lore. Right. And it, it felt so whimsical and like like a fantasia on reality that it didn't have the gravity it's supposed to have because it is a heart wrenching. Judy's story is heartbreaking. And there's a part of me that I was like, why would you want to make a movie about old Judy Garland? Uh, when there's so much happier, but I realize it's not happy to re- to visit young right. Judy Garland because that's where the tragedy, the roots of the tragedy are. It's pr- it's probably even harder to portray young Judy Garland convincingly in a in a contemporary film than it is old Judy Garland. It really goes to show how much the world has changed and how Hollywood has changed, even the way people talk to one another and the values we have and the boundary between the real and the imaginary in the public imagination with Hollywood, it's hard to translate whatever was going on in the 30s and 40s in Hollywood to to understand today, I think. Yeah, but I felt at times engrossed and I, I bought into the, the, you know, the, the main plot of the movie. The flashbacks didn't have any kind of sense of bringing me back into that world. It felt very right. uh, superficial. All right, so that's a lot on Judy. Yeah. Yeah, I think we put a little bow on that. <laughs> Exhausted it. Um, all right, so I saw The Lighthouse. I'm seeing it Wednesday. Okay. So, so maybe give some quick thoughts and then we'll catch up next time. Yeah, so it's a psychological thriller, black and white, in a claustrophobic square starring um, Willem Dafoe and uh, just a wonderful Robert Pattinson. Not like Dafoe's not great, too. I don't know what this movie was about. I couldn't understand most of the dialogue or make a lot of sense of it, but it was just so interesting to me and compelling, and it's had an ongoing effect. I'm still thinking about it days later, so I'll be really interested Mm. to see what you think of it. I am very excited. It just looks bonkers in the best way. I really enjoyed Robert Eggers' uh, first film, The Witch, which is acclaimed. It's not some obscure thing that I discovered. It's just a thing that was big last year. He and Ari Aster really uh, popped on the scene, and then they've both really hit, um, from what people say, they've hit pretty strong with their sophomore efforts. All these auteurs, like along with Jordan Peele. Yeah, right. And really young guys Mm -hmm. uh, at that. It's exciting because it means that there's, you know lots of filmmakers to watch i really do did like the witch and the uh, strength of the witch is that it takes place in this um puritan colonies you know in america you know the original presbyterians in that community and everyone speaks as authentically as possible almost to the point of you know being maddening uh and so i really i was uh, i saw it on on disc so i could read the the subtitles uh, this he really seems to be a stickler for period detail um and it does you know it, it can be frustrating and make them hard to access but it also does infuse them with a real sense of reality and 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 dread or whatever it is he's trying to to create but yeah this really teeters between dream and nightmare and to me, a lot of the sequences didn't necessarily make sense together, and you could go in all sorts of directions for interpretation. To me, just 
uh, the journey is is the fun rather than trying to make any sense of it. Great. I look forward to trying to do so. <laughs> the Witch was fairly straightforward. It was stark and it was upsetting. It had a lot to talk about, but it was not confusing or, or weird on purpose. Well, so, I need to catch up with that one. Yeah. I need to see my Presbyterian history. <laughs> what did uh, you think of Dolomite? I really enjoyed Do- Dolomite. I'm, I didn't go crazy for it like I'm seeing a lot of people do online. I just found it to be very enjoyable. It was a great cast. Um, Ruth Carter's costumes are so fun. And I liked watching this really unlikely story that you know really took place happen without too many obstacles getting in the way. Just things work out for this guy who seems to have his finger on the pulse of a subculture that mainstream uh, media isn't catering to. Um I think that Eddie Murphy gives a great performance. This, to me, is what uh, the SAG Ensemble Award is all about because it's truly an ensemble effort. You love the whole cast. I love that moment where they're you know strutting down the street in their finery to go make their deal. And it just has a really good feel-good ending. And I was interested to learn this history too because I had never heard of Dolomite before. But this is a famous film in a, in a genre and it's a part of history that I didn't know about. Yeah, I, I felt very similarly. I had a little bit of awareness of Dolomite just being frequently in the in the world of, of cheesy movies. And I've never seen the whole thing, but I've seen montages of clips of the weirdest stuff from, from Dolomite. Uh, and I'm a big fan of uh, Alexander and Karaszewski, the, um, the, the screenwriters. They also wrote uh, Ed Wood and uh, People vs. Larry Flint and Big Eyes. They have kind of a corner on the peculiar um, kind of cozy biography movies. And I, I, I thought this was very much like a, uh, a another application of the Ed Wood formula where you kind of take this obscure, maybe, uh, you know, outsider story of, of, a, of a cult niche film being made and this this strange crew of people being assembled and you kind of just get a very delightful, probably a little too whimsical, you know, version of of the story. I don't know if I get the vibe that the real Rudy Ray Moore was as magnetic and and magnanimous and and lovable as Eddie Murphy. But um, yeah, this movie was was delightful. I'm not flipping for it. It won't be on my you know top lists, but it was a very enjoyable diversion. Yeah, I liked it a lot too. Uh, well, the big the big deal. I guess is parasite. Uh, yeah, let me we, let me hear your thoughts. We've both seen it, so I, part of the pleasure of this movie is not knowing too much going in. So I'm not going to be, you know, too. Uh, I'm not going to walk on eggshells too much, but I don't want to overload. We're going to have to probably get into what we think about what's going on, though. So if you haven't seen Parasite, maybe you want to check it out and then come back and and you know skip ahead five minutes or whatever. I, I, I'm still waiting for some kind of impression of it to completely form in my mind and heart. I know that I enjoyed watching it. I know that it's special. I know that I want to see it again when I can. Um, but I don't know what to take away. I think I'm a little too concerned. I think I'm more concerned than you are usually with uh, nailing down. Like I'm, I'm always too quick to be like, what did this movie mean? What can I connect? What can I, what is it trying to say? And this feels like a movie that has a lot to say but uh, perhaps best enjoyed as an experience with you know themes and afterthought. 
because there's obviously a lot going on here in Parasite about class. Um, but it's also just a crazy yarn. It's just a story that um, it, it's it's weird from the start. You don't know where it's going. And then when it starts to go somewhere, it proceeds to surprise you. So I guess um, it's about a family. It's about a poor family that has to strive and struggle uh, and be extremely clever and crafty to get their, their needs met in a, in a world where there is great inequality between classes. The young son, he can't afford to go to university, but he's very smart. He gets an opportunity to tutor a rich girl. And then from there, the family basically uh, invades the life. The poor family invades the life of this wealthy family. And then things just get more and more heightened and insane from there. there the locations in this movie are, are are it's a cliche to say that they are characters but they are certain they're part of the creative craziness of this movie is the sense of place from the uh, basement apartment of the poor family to the the house that the wealthy family lives in that kitchen with that big black opening where yes. people go in and come out of and you never know what's gonna <laughs> it's just craziness and that set was built for the movie, I understand. Yeah. The whole thing, the the basement apartment oh, yeah. town wow. was built in a tank for the flooding sequence. Mm-hmm. You know, you would you just think that that's some street in Korea and it is not. Wow. And the house, what a piece of architecture that is a set. Yeah. And it, the house is a character that allows people to scurry around and yeah, right. get hidden and miss each other by moments. Right. I, I mean, the the first act to me reminded me of the first half of Life is Beautiful, where sort of some cute, fun, amusing coincidence happenings um, go on, and you watch the heroes kind of get their needs met. And then when they've gotten their needs met and they're there drinking, celebrating, having full run of the house, there's that doorbell and then immediate yeah. dread and ominousness yeah. as someone has come to call. And then it just goes crazy. Right. Yeah. So I feel like up to that point, it's a story about, you know, uh, what is justified and what is not in in climbing the ladder and in the marginalized uh, taking what they feel they're owed. And then it becomes kind of about the infighting uh, among the have nots, uh, you know, to protect their their bit of of uh, of a of a windfall. You know, this movie is so designed, as, as we were just talking about with the sets, and uh, this director, his movies are very, very designed, but they're usually, there's some kind of science fiction, you know, uh, the host is kind of a kaiju movie, and Okja is this kind of, has this fantastical creature in it, and uh, Snowpiercer takes place on this this train that's all made with special effects. This is such a smaller story with just, you know, characters, it takes place in a world that's recognizable as a heightened version of the real world. But it's still, it's, it reminds me of when uh, Jean-Pierre Genet went from, you know, uh, Delicatessen and the City of Lost Children to Amelie or something like that, where you're still using all the tools of design and cinema, but to tell a much smaller, more human story. Um it, it, it's extraordinary. It really lives up to the hype and the buzz in a way that not many things this year have. Yeah, it's so endlessly inventive. I, I'd felt like I'd gotten my money's worth at the end of the second act. I thought that was the end of the film. And then the party begins 
and I'm like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. Hmm. Um, that sense of dread as that one individual approaches the party. Yeah. And I, I love the image of people who are stuck and in hiding, sending messages to a sympathetic member of a higher class. Um, but it, but it's such a long road for it to be received, if it can be received at all. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought I loved the um, mother's monologue when they're alone in the house about how nice rich people are and how she'd be nice too mm-hmm. if she had everything. I've thought about that before, yeah. And because it's true, like people who have a lot and have a lot of comfort in their life tend to be very nice, and why not? Right. And yeah. what and what at the end, you know, because there's no class solidarity really because the two lower class folks are fighting over who's going to be able to mooch off the rich folks. And really the rich folks are the ones mooching off the poor folks. I guess that's the grand mm-hmm. reversal where in the end there is a sacrifice of, you know, two of the poor die for one of the rich. Yeah. And that that's probably a even a generous mm-hmm. proportion. Right when you can kind of feel the the gleeful creativity of the filmmaker and the filmmakers uh, through the screen, even despite cultural distance and, and subtitles and all that uh, I felt like this was a very recognizable world. I didn't need a whole lot of handholding to get into it. And the cast is great. I'm sorry that I don't, you know, I'm not conversant in all of their, their names, but I recognize some of them from his other films and from some other uh, Korean films I've seen. But um, yeah, it's, you know, everybody's right. Parasite is fascinating and great. See it if you can. And there we have it. All right. Uh, Okay, Dan, we'll take a little break and then we'll come back and talk about our feature for the week. back our movie this week was my selection so i'm gonna introduce us to quiz show a movie i believe we are both familiar with um quiz show is a 1994 drama biography historical film directed by robert redford starring rafe fines john turturro rob morrow mira sorvino christopher mcdonald paul schofield joanne carlo david pamer hank azaria and many many other recognizable faces It dramatizes the quiz show scandals of the late 1950s, playing fast uh, and loose with facts and details, but uh, getting pretty uh, decisively to the heart of the whole matter, I would say. And John Turturro plays Herbert Stemple, the bookish and flamboyant champion of a uh, game show called 21, a uh, boorish working class fellow with a good brain for trivia who is asked by the producers to take a dive when his numbers begin to dip. And meanwhile, Rafe finds as Charles Van Doren, the handsome son of a family of wealthy academics is groomed uh, to be his re- replacement. Stemple panics, threatens to blow the whistle on the uh, entire show, which we come to find out has always been a complete fix. 
Um, and eventually federal investigator Dick Goodwin, played by Rob Morrow, comes to New York to investigate the show. Um, an investigation which ultimately leads to a media scandal and a public hearing. So the movie does a lot with the intrigue of the investigation and the sleaze of the producers of uh, 21, the sinister corporate powers that be, the moral quandary of Van Doren, and the desperation of Stemple, and does a fairly excellent job encapsulating a truly uh, essentially quintessentially American scandal where the specific transgressions feel remarkably quaint from our vantage point, but the ramifications feel uh, distressingly salient and familiar. Uh, my take might end up just being kind of a boring gush, but I loved this movie in 1994 and I had a really nice time revisiting it. Quiz show is well-conceived, it's well-written, it's well-cast, it's well-directed, and it's well-acted. It uh, may not be an all-time great, but for me, it transcends mere professional competence and really does something with its subject matter through craft and and filmmaking uh, diligence. It uh, it looks really good. It's kind of like uh, Coen Brothers slick in its uh, cinematography and its its design and its look. I think that it's it, it's uh, cozy and pleasant to watch, uh, like a good old fashioned movie. So, Dan, before we dig in any further, what is your history with Quiz Show? So my history with Quiz Show is that I saw it near the time it came out. And this was unusual because I was still pretty young. I would have been 13 at the time. And we didn't go to that many movies in those days. And I have this very specific memory that we were on vacation in Florida. And like on pay-per-view or something, we rented Quiz Show, which is just totally unlike something we do. So that mm. is a strange memory that I have. And so my 13-year-old self probably didn't quite understand what was going on or all the history. I remember thinking it was interesting and I get to see a movie. Wow. Um, and so a rewatch now, I enjoyed it a lot more. I didn't remember that much of it. It's a really well-made film. And um, it, it's I mean, it was one of the best picture nominees that year. And what a year alongside uh, Forrest Gump and Shawshank and Pulp Fiction. Yeah. Wow. It, I mean, to me, it doesn't quite uh, meet those standards, but it's interesting that that was the time and those were the peers. It's very much feels like a mid-90s movie, whatever that means, mm -hmm. the, the way it's paced and the music and the way it looks. I really still struggle to see what the scandal was. I think that that's ways that things have changed from mid-20th century to now. The yeah. idea that, oh, something that they put on TV was, was not real? It was it was manipulated for entertainment. Um, in the end, the contestants made money and the network made money. And I don't think anyone resented that maybe they bought Geritol because they watched the show. Um, Ebert's review mentioned something interesting that back in those days, the country could be galvanized by people who they thought at least knew a lot. They were interested in intellectuals and in learning maybe about arts and science in ways that I don't think the public is generally interested in today. Can you imagine such a boring game show as 21 being played today? 
we totally do things that I think in the uh, late fifties would have seemed, you know, entirely unseemly and undignified. Right. Um, but it's just the way that uh, life has gone. Because I'm thinking, why why is the government getting involved in this? Because they just want to make sure that the public understands that that they were lied to. But right. who said we needed to tell you the truth? I guess I got some compromised morality about this. Mm-hmm. So th- that isn't like a, a critique of the film because they're observing what the public imagination and shared consciousness was like in those days. Um, but it, it was hard for me to latch on to in that way. This movie was nearly directed by Steven Soderbergh, starring Tim Robbins as Van Doren. Really? Yeah, that would have been an equally interesting 90s movie different but uh i was thinking if they remade it today um herb stemples the role tony hale was born to play yes true (laughs) true however that's actually one of the things i have written down here is it problematic that turturro plays a comically jewish person (laughs) i mean i don't know is is turturro this is a dumb question is he jewish i think he's fully italian i don't think he's jewish yeah, well, that would probably be problematic on Twitter today. Right. I don't uh, know, um, Herb Stemple. I will tell you that when I was younger, I thought he seemed like an old person. And so, of course, I was shocked <laughs> to see an actor who's like looks younger than me right. in the role. <laughs> right. Uh, I think it's a good performance. I think it's it's silly, but it's very human. And uh, one of the things I like about this movie that I have uh, jotted down some notes about is that how it serves up very familiar 50s cliches uh like the ones that we saw in pleasantville and the majestic but i would say they work so much better than those movies and it seems like it's just a fine tuning of the dials like the ending scene the the hearing scene is just an example where in majestic it was it was just a kind of a shit show um but here i felt like you know it may be silly and heightened uh and like you say what is the government doing getting involved in this scandal that's you know basically about uh is entertainment real but um i don't know i i found it to be always watchable and i really enjoy uh the the writing uh the characterization and then all the faces i've got written down names down here ernie sabella um pamer and his area christopher mcdonald Ileana douglas shows up smart and scorsese is the geritol executive i know i know uh and did you see a very something i missed i've seen this movie many times and i never noticed who one of uh van doren's father's students is towards the end of the movie did you oh, catch I didn't him notice. ethan oh. hawk oh really ethan, it, it's very weirdly staged where he only faces the camera for a split second but he has a line oh. he exchanges a line with uh with the older van doren and is, there, is that ethan hawk and i looked it up and it was yeah, I like the relationship um, between Fines and the father quite a yeah. bit. That's where the heart of the movie lies. And I think it was a really good plan basically to enter the story midway around the time that Van Doren gets on the show. Can you imagine what a slog yes. if we had gone right. through Herb Stemple getting on the show mm-hmm. and his rise and the it worked so much better that we're watching his star fall. And then you get to find out later um, kind of as a reveal that he had also been cheating. Yeah. That makes it interesting because if you'd watched that and you have the whole Stemple part and then the whole Van Doren part, now it has to be about Van Doren's journey and his inner wrestling with himself. Cause it was just a step at a time 
of things that were a little bent and you didn't think you were really doing anything wrong. And then suddenly it's this huge deal. Right. Um, and, and I guess that's how things like that happen. Yeah. It certainly doesn't hurt that Paul Schofield and Ray Fiennes are excellent actors, but I did very much like the family dynamic in the Van Dorns. And I think this is uh, the writing and directing as well, that I feel like one of the things that should have been really hard to portray on screen is kind of New Englandy academic intellectual life. And I felt like that was one of the better achievements of the movie is that the Van Doren seemed like real people. And that relationship between father and son really did have gravitas to it. The part I think that might be the weakest here is, is Rob Morrow and his, his subplot. Um, I think he's doing his best. His accent in this movie is notorious though. I think Ray Fine's American accent has a little bit of, of cracks in it as well. Um, but I don't know, just the, the world of him and the other investigators and his relationship with Mira Sorvino, there was, you know, there was something there. It wasn't bad. I just think if there's a, if there's a weak thread, that might be, uh, for me, the, the weakest area of the movie. It didn't really matter. It took me a while really to understand who he even was or what his interest, like, are you a reporter? Are you a congressperson? Like, what right. what is your role? Yeah. And yeah, the relationship with Mira Sorvino was extraneous um but something i did like going back to the family just momentarily is i feel like it's such a film cliche to have like older academic parents who are hard with you and who kind of shut you out or are distant and how refreshing it was that oh here's a person who has a good relationship with his grown parents mm -hmm. that's unusual mm -hmm. and when morrow is invited into that world that he's treated with kindness and generosity and there's not some unrealistic heavy handed handed threatening of, Oh, you keep your nose out of this or something like right, that. Right. To me, it was played out like a regular person who was in the middle of a mess would just trying to deflect and stay back. Yeah. And to me that, that all worked really well once the plot was off and running. Yeah. And meanwhile, elsewhere, I felt like, um, cartoonish as it could be the Stemple household had a kind of a, of a warmth to it as well. His yeah. wife seemed very long suffering, a very sweet character. Um, I don't know. I just, I liked that whole dynamic. I like the kind of, you know, fake movie New York of this movie. Um, so much of it works, I think. Yeah. I, I had seen that, uh, this film in my letterboxd list and i'd thought about maybe re you know suggesting it for a rewatch it just never got to the top of my list um but i really did uh think a lot more of it than i remember yeah yeah i'm glad it's there and I, I, it does not have a blu-ray release which to me is is uh, i can't believe it it's not a hit movie it did not um even make back its modest budget of 30 million dollars um but it has the claim it's an awards movie i'd like a a, a nice you know if Kino Lorber or Criterion or somebody wants to give this a nice little package and put uh, get, let Redford do a commentary. I don't know if he does that kind of thing, but I'd like to see this movie get its its due in the way that something like Gosford Park has. I think it's so interesting. I mean, in, here in the era before the preferential ballot, when there were only five Best Picture nominees, now I think even when we can have up to ten, it's hard for movies to get in that list of eight to ten. Yeah. It surprises me that this one would have made it into the top five that year, especially in such a clearly competitive year. Mm -hmm. Oh, I, just a few little things I'll throw out that I have mentioned in my notes. Lines that I liked. Uh, 
Van Doren's about to have his first kosher meal. Uh, you are the Uncle Tom of the Jews. Again, probably inappropriate, not being spoken by mm-hmm. Jewish actors. Uh, Mario Cantone at the phone booth. That's another strange I know. I know. Uh, cameo. Just a lot of delightful, weird little moments in this movie. Oh, and um, David Paymer, who plays Dan Enright, the producer of mm-hmm. 21, a very, every, you know, a very recognizable character actor. Right. He plays Dick Goodwin, the same real-life investigator that Rob Morrow plays, uh, eight years later in a movie about RFK. Oh, really? I found strange. Well, that's a quinky dink. Sure. And now I found it interesting that the movie goes out of its way to make even Van Doren, it doesn't let him off the hook, but it does make, he does get duped into the fix, which I think is probably not what happened in real life. I'm thinking he probably knew exactly what he was getting into, but the movie does give him a little bit of a cushion he puts his foot down and says, I won't do this. And then they kind of spring it on him on the air. But then it's a little bit, you know, rough on him in the end. Uh, but of course, again, what does any of this matter? It's a very quaint. <laughs> I guess it's just the fact that America had not publicly wrestled with these things. Uh, or maybe it had. And this movie is just kind of, you know, having a little bit of a of a fantasy back when America was innocent. I guess so. Um, it was how to succeed in business without really trying is like 1962 or 63. Hmm. And the plot of the whole second act hinges on a disaster following a crooked game show. So that was still very much part of the public consciousness and something relevant Mm -hmm. um, back then. This idea that it's important uh, that game shows not be rigged Mm -hmm. because who's cheated if they are. Right. Right. Uh, the most tragic thing in the movie uh, in the world of the movie seems to be this handsome smart guy who didn't need to lied about knowing things and winning money like what a tragedy that a celebrity was not representing himself he did need to though they all did whatever people were tuning in for oh how can this person know all this trivia wow they're amazing no actually nobody knows all this trivia is the answer right it's all fake. Yeah. And of course, if you knew it was fake, it's less interesting to watch. But after the fact, who cares? Yeah. Interesting too. Whenever I see uh, depictions of trivia or academia from like the 50s or from that, you know, any, any real time in the mid to earlier 20th century, it's always historical minutiae that right. nobody knows. Nobody cares today. Jeopardy is like movie references and, you know, right. who was in the commercial, whatever. It's all, it's like pop culture now. Even the, the, the smartest show we've got like this remaining. It's, it's a whole different world, but I can't imagine what it was like for television to hit the scene. People had been able to go to the movies for a entertainment every now and again. This idea though, that there's something in your house available to you all the time and something's got to be on, even if you only have three channels. Right. Yeah. what uh what is real and what is not it's like people had not yet reckoned with that yeah uh, i'm running out of of notes and thoughts um i oh the uh the cake scene uh with van doren and dad i think mm-hmm. that might be my favorite scene in the movie just the strength of those performances and the unspoken and the spoken it's a very uh very nice moment yeah, I think the only thing left I have to say is what the hell is going on with that uh, Lyle Lovett cover of Mac the Knife over the end credits? 
that was curious the to creepy me. Creepy lyrics. And like people like kind of cheering and laughing in an audience. Yeah. What were we to, what were we to make of that? What was the yeah. meaning from a filmmaking perspective? The best I could think, and I don't think this is correct, but the movie opens with the nice car, the 50s chrome, and the original version, the, the one everybody knows, the kind of pop version of Mac the Knife. By the end, we've seen behind everything, and it's it's warped. It's not what we thought it was. So we kind of get this look at an audience. Uh, the innocence is gone, and we hear this incredibly strange update to this famous song. But I, I don't know. Maybe it was just slapped together. I'm not sure. Are we to learn anything? Are we to think this is how it is? Sometimes you watch television and something rigged has gone on behind the scenes. Yeah. Now you know. It's like, yeah, well, of course we know. Now someone needs to make a, a movie about the fact that the movie quiz show was not 100% correct and honest with its portrayal. Right. Well, even the title cards at the end, I guess, were not accurate that Van Dorn did go back to teaching. Hmm. Interesting. So why say he didn't? Right. Hmm. Uh, Ebert loved the movie. It was in his top 10 of the year. And again, that's a, that's a crowded year. Uh, I'm glad this movie exists. I don't, yeah, it doesn't have uh, the impact because I don't think it's about something that matters, but yet it is excellently made. And uh, I found it a pleasure to watch. Yeah, I enjoyed it too. All right, Dan. Um, well, that train going by means that we've reached the end of our journey. I don't know. <laughs> you know what the music means. Yeah. Yeah, that uh, this has been our podcast. Um, we'll be back next week to at least discuss The Lighthouse a little further. I'm also seeing Terminator Dark Fate on Thursday against my Ooh. better judgment, but we'll see how that goes. Did you sign up for a screen- screening of Terminator 2? No, I did I would be very sore if that uh, if I did that and it backfired. But I'm choosing to see the new one. So I don't know, maybe they'll surprise us and show us an even newer one. Right. Uh, this has been our podcast. We are Dan and Josh. You can follow us both on Letterboxd and Twitter. The show is at HoldsUpPod on Twitter. Uh, our music is by Jonah Rapino. Thank you so much for listening. Let us know what you think. We'd love to hear from you, and we would love for you to review and rate us on iTunes. And um, just, you know, tell everyone you know about this very special thing. Don't Don't hoard us to yourself. Share us with the world. Each one can reach one. <laughs> All right, Dan. Well, you have a magical evening. I hope that uh, you have a happy one and it's a great celebration. And go see a movie to celebrate. Thank you. And also with you. Uh, Goodbye. Bye. Uh, I have podcast business. Should I save that for the end? Whatever. Not necessarily on air, just, uh, you know, thinking about things. I'm always thinking, always looking. Yeah, for I want to hear your. Th- I want to hear your thoughts now. All right, uh, this might be wrong. I just want to say it out loud and pitch it to see if if you're into it. And maybe I will include this because maybe I want to know what listeners think if there's one or two of them that exist. I think we both enjoy very much talking about what we've seen, and uh, it feels kind of like homework when we dig into the big movie and so i've already you know we've already scaled back to do the 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 holds up deep dive every other week what if we just became kind of a movie review conversation show where we talk about what we've seen 
And if we want to, we throw in a DVD pick or a streaming pick or something that we revisited. And that can just be part of the flowing conversation instead of here's a, here's a segment where we share all the trivia we looked up about <laughs> this movie. Uh, that's fine with, Ma that's fine with me. Does that sound okay? I don't know if, I guess I would like to hear from people if you're like, no, no, the deep dive is the best part, but I can't, I just can't imagine that being, I can't imagine anybody thinks that. Yeah. I, <laughs> uh, um, and then we can do it cause we want to not right. cause well, it's my turn. And it might still be fun to tip each other off casually. Cause maybe it's fun when we both revisited the same thing, but I just think we do better when it's like a little more casual and free flowing and not, uh, you know, not homework. Oh, I agree with you. All right. I was feeling that and I didn't know if it was uh, appropriate or not. You know what? I want you to learn to trust your inner voice. And All right. To be who God made you to be in the world. Then we're, we're going to exclusively review Hallmark Christmas movies <laughs> from now on. Oh, no. <laughs> you you inspired me. What have, I done? what have I done? 